Welcome to Dances FAQ, the podcast that gives you health information, keys for action and motivation, as well as tips for your career and well-being. My name is Alex Renier, and I'm very excited to share all of that with you, artists, athletes, and dancers. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to talk about the deep squat. This position is often really hard to do or difficult to maintain for a lot of Westerners. If you have traveled to Asia or Africa, you probably saw many people cooking, working, or even relaxing in that position no matter their age. Is the dip squat impossible for me because I am from a different culture and background? Or is it possible but it will take some time? Or is it possible but it will take generations? That's what we are going to discuss today with my guest, Thomas Love English. He is a mover and researcher who in 2015 founded Ferus and Emi Terranova Movement Research Collective based in Europe. Their purpose is to enrich the practices of their students and collaborators, sharing tools and knowledge from scientific and artistic disciplines, including neuroscience, evolutionary physiology, biomechanics, and philosophy. If you are one of our recurrent listeners, make sure you subscribe to the channel to support the podcast. If this is your first time on Dances of AQ, thank you for being here today. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Welcome to Mislav on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So the big question of the day is, why can such a little amount of people do a deep squat? In some ways, it's a huge, big, broad question. So I'll try and be sort of succinct, succinct in, in uh, how, how to disseminate a question such as this. Because there's many components of it, you know, it's to do with flexibility. And then we look at elements of cultural differences and whether there's differences in physical capabilities based on ethnicity. There's so many factors which will influence something which might seem really simple. Sometimes there might be a bit of a myth of, oh, some people can do this because they're from here. Other mm -hmm. people can't do this because they're not from here or because they're from somewhere else. And I think the reality is, is um, more complex and more nuanced than that. And of course, we're working with theory rather than any concrete objective fact because we can't know for certain any of these things. But within the fields of physiology and anthropology, I think there's some pretty good and interesting theories. We can uh, break it down from any direction, really. Choosing where to start from is the... <laughs> right. Let, maybe let's start with uh, culture and ethnicity. When we look at it from a, from a cultural perspective, uh, anthropological perspective, what we see in different cultures around the world is very clear differences in how we do some of the daily rituals. And by that, I mean the things that everyone will do. Everyone will eat. Everyone will pass fluids, go to the toilet. Everyone will have sex, adults, of course. Everyone will interact with their environment, whether that's tool making or craft, or as we see later on in the development of society, things like working at desks, etc. And in general, everyone will have some form of prayer. Yeah, some form of religion or prayer. And these habits, these daily rituals, will form a lot of the movement vocabulary that each culture uh, will, will perform throughout their lifetime. And that will often be passed down from generation to generation as the culture develops. Sometimes that development might be slow, sometimes it might be quite fast. Now, of course, based on where you are in the world, this development will be quite different based on the climate, based on the technology available. And then just based on the sort of poetic elements of the cultures and religions that inform some of the very uniquely human aspects of our, of our lives 
And that's where it comes down to things like prayer and ritual. Now, if we, without sort of disseminating the whole history of religion, and let's take a more sort of general broad view, if we look at cultures, let's say Eastern cultures informed by Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, these sort of Eastern branches of, of philosophy and religion and outlook, we can see a relationship with the ground, with the earth, and with the environment and with animals, trees, uh, plant life, etc. That is what we would call holistic, as in we would see ourselves as part of this dynamic network, uh, an ingredient as part of the soup, if you will, rather than the person sort of making the soup or who the soup is made for. Because of this slightly different relationship with the earth, what we'll see is there's less of a, a for want of a better word, stigma with interacting with the earth or with doing the sort of animal functions that humans do. So what we'll see is in the sort of movement signature of these cultures, a much closer relationship with the floor, whether this is relaxing on the floor, working on the floor, eating on the floor, praying on the floor. It doesn't just mean lounging around necessarily. There might be some ritualistic form and posture to it, as we see with sort of prayer positions, meditation positions, um, or if you're looking um, also at sort of eating positions, sometimes it's kneeling very low on the floor in this sort of seiza position, uh, very low tables as we develop through culture and we start to build our, our, our environmental tools such as tables, chairs. We see that they tend to be much lower. And so you might have a, a large population, an entire culture and society that is, uh, it's, its movement signature involves being much lower in their habitual movement. I think we can see resonance of this in Eastern culture in general, in countries like China, Japan, the Koreas, where we see dining habits, prayer habits, and just general lifestyle habits involve interacting with the floor a lot more often. And then also in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, where we see still a lot of cooking habits and, again, lifestyle habits, eating, working, praying at much lower levels. By saying that this is linked to habits... Does it mean that if I start cooking tomorrow on the floor, if I start working, being seated on the floor, will I be able to do that position, uh, like the deep squat and stay in that position, feeling comfortable? Okay, maybe we see very large instances of people in the West finding it very difficult to get low to the floor in a comfortable fashion to maintain low positions such as this deep squat position or low kneeling positions, we can see that reflected in our environment, in our environmental tools. We have these high tables, these beds that are very high, high chairs. Um, we build our toilets very high off the ground. Not, we don't use these squatting toilets. And we can look at our relationship with the ground, which will have been very different based on our religious and uh, social historical development over the last 5,000 years or so, which is creating a relationship with the environment around us where somehow we are separate to this natural world. It's built uh, for us. Somehow the floor is animal, and because we are not animal, we are made in the image of God. The floor is dirty, and any animal function of, the, of humanity, such as sex and um, going to the toilet, is somehow dirty. And the whole culture moves away from the floor to this very unique ideal of humanity as made in God's image and that the floor is something which is literally beneath us 
and you know we use this language oh it's beneath me to imply that something is not good enough for me and it's very interesting language beneath lower closer to the ground as somehow inferior if let's say we take that theory of this development happening culture by culture in very different ways now we arrive to this amazing point of globalization in the history of humanity where we have access to see all these different cultures and the cultures are really mixing at a very fast rate we see this amazing melting point of different cultures people from different ethnicities and backgrounds mixing all over the world everywhere that you can imagine so we see these cultures slowly blending and it means also that we'll start to notice maybe differences when they arise so if for example i'm a westerner and i've grown up in a sort of western christian culture even if it's non-religious still the effects of that will seep into my language my education you know my my holidays celebrating christmas and easter and, and all of these things so somehow we can imagine that both psychologically and physically there will be effects be resonance of this cultural difference therefore the physical difference here is obvious it's like going down close to the ground we might find it difficult to understand why we find it difficult we need to understand a little bit the physiology of it or if we want to understand what it would take for it to not be difficult we need to understand the physiology is it impossible because i'm from a certain culture and background or is it possible but it will take some time or is it possible but it will take generations for us to reclaim the, the capacity to be comfortable in low positions this is really the question yeah like how deep are anchored these habits exactly and so i would say that the perspectives on this are slightly mixed if we look at evolution we can understand that we are still evolving in the same way that we can speculate that our shoulder structure completely changed at the point in our evolutionary history when we moved up to live in the trees and that we developed the capacity to have full rotation in the shoulder to be able to brachiate from tree to tree and then we can also speculate that our entire skeletal musculoskeletal system changed again when we came down from the trees potentially nice theory at the advent of being able to use fire as a tool we didn't have to sleep in the trees for safety anymore we were able to cook food to digest more energy and more efficiently extra energy went to the brain slowly coming upright so all of these sort of evolutionary points where our structure is changing this is ongoing this is still happening and the shift in the last few centuries to a more sedentary lifestyle and also the capacity that we have now to build environmental tools that assist us in having to move less whether that's a bicycle to the car to the escalator to a lift to elevator to uh, you know everything that you can imagine even simple things like a table instead of having to pick something up off the floor it's at a much easier distance and height for you to interact with it with your hands the computers and the the, the tablets and all the things we interact with are built to be very easy for us to to interact with we don't have to lift anything heavy from a low height it's always at heights which are convenient and the most obvious is that you know the chair instead of having to descend all the way down and all the way back up every single time we want to rest we have the capacity to build a technology which allows us to minimize that journey so that instead of going all the way down and all the way back up we simply have to sit about half of that journey do you Now, like easy regarding the energy like it's taking you less energy to come off a chair than it would to stand up from the floor is that what you mean yeah so yeah. 
literally the sort of biomechanical energy needs with regards to the forces of you know gravity and exertion upon your structure and then also from the physiology of it your energy needs with regards to how many calories it burns how much muscle activation it requires evolution implores us to seek efficiency in our environment and whether that comes for humans is and it's quite unique to humans from building a more efficient movement to be able to interact with the environment or whether that comes from being clever enough to change our environment to make it less challenging. Either way, we're looking for efficiency. For the majority of our evolution and the evolution of other species, other animals, and you know, plants and everything else that's alive as well, the currency would have been the movement. We would have developed very skillful movement, efficient movement, to allow us to interact with a very, very complex environment that we have on this planet. At the point where we became smart enough to start to change the environment, Movement was no longer the currency, and innovation, creativity, technology became the currency. Does that make sense? Yeah. So at that point, we start innovating all of these technologies, and a chair, a wheel, all these things that we take for granted, these are technologies. These are you know, amazing inventions that allow us to have a lower needs output, to allow us to live in more comfort, to have better outlook for survival, for reproduction. And survival and reproduction are the two sort of base, you know, desires of of anything that's living, as far as we as far as we know. So if we recontextualize it based around this squat position, right, or any any position that that's outside of what we can do, we have to realize that we've lost the capacity potentially because we've made our environment a little bit too comfortable. Is it enough then to make the environment less comfortable in order to reclaim the movement currency? For example, if instead of having a desk that's at hip height, I get a desk that's much lower down and I have to you know, sit very low to the floor, potentially while keeping a good posture, and then every time I'm standing up and sitting down, the needs are higher, the mm. physical energy requirement is higher, will that be enough, will that be sufficient by complexifying the environment to reclaim the complex movement? And by all accounts and by my experience, Yes, this can be sufficient, but it takes time. And in order for us to understand that process, we have to understand what flexibility is. This is the second side of it, which is the physiological side of it. What's happening in our body when we become more or less flexible, which I'm happy to dive into. Yeah, and also when you reclaim it and when you're finally able to do it, how much effort do you have to put in to keep it You know, it's like if you train to have a split, for example, here you are doing the split, then you don't do it. You go on holidays for two months. You don't do the split again. You come back to the studio. It's not there anymore. Is it the same with mobility? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question. And it's a, you know, it's a good question to ask if, let's say, someone who grew up, let's say someone grew up in a culture where they were interacting with the floor a lot and they were sitting in this deep squat while working while going to the toilet and they were regularly um, kneeling to eat and, and being very low. If they stopped doing that, having done that for their whole childhood as an adult for you know six months, let's say, would they lose that capacity? It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. When we look at flexibility, I think the first and most important aspect to consider is where is flexibility housed? Where does flexibility exist? Does it exist in the muscles or does it exist in the brain? I think a really common misconception is that 
flexibility or inflexibility is because of the length, physical length of the musculature. So often we'll say, okay, when we're working with our students, who has tight hamstrings? Who has short hamstrings? And we'll see a lot of hands going up. Oh, yes, I have short hamstrings. I have short hamstrings. I myself believed for a long time that my flexibility limitations were because of the length of the, the hamstring muscle. Oh, I have short hamstrings. When we were able to put people under general anesthetic, so to put people to sleep for the sake of operations, and this happened you know, over 100 years ago and it's developed over time to be much, much more efficient. At a certain point, there was a realization that during this anesthetic where the nervous system is asleep, the brain is essentially switched off, if you will, which is why we have no memory and no recollection of anything that happens during that time we saw that people's flexibility limitations were gone. People who, when they're conscious and awake and interacting with the world, can't touch their toes, suddenly the limbs were able to, you know, they would be able to put their feet up next to their ears if they wanted to. Obviously, they're unconscious, so it required the doctors to sort of check ranges of motion. So they're checking these ranges of motion when this brain is in its unconscious state. And what they found was the length of the muscles, that the muscles have this elastic capability, and that what is restricting that length is not in the muscles, or it's not stimulated by the muscles. So then developments in brain science and, and neuroscience uh, occurred over the, however many decades. It's been the best part of a century now. What we found was that uh, we, humans, what humans found, I wasn't there, <laughs> was that this shortening of a muscle at the edge, at the horizon of our flexible range, wasn't happening in the muscle, it was happening in the brain. The brain was sending a signal to the muscle to contract, and this is what we call the stretch reflex. So the stretch reflex is a reflex, a signal sent from your brain to the muscle, that when you get to the horizon of your flexible range, the muscle contracts, and it doesn't let you go any further. It's sort of like a handbrake. So whenever we're close to the edge of our range or we get to the edge of our range, this handbrake instinctively, subconsciously, you can't just turn it off and on consciously. It's a subconscious autonomic function. This handbrake kicks in and stops us from going further. Now, a good question is why? Why does this happen? Why does this handbrake kick in? And I would just like you to imagine for a moment a human trying to move efficiently if they just had no elasticity or restriction at the edge of their range. Imagine trying to do something athletic, like throw a heavy ball. You can imagine the human sort of lolloping all over, like very floppy, very little capacity for elastic change. So when we look at athletic movement, which we speculate is very necessary for survival in the environment in which we evolved, having specific boundary to our range of motion is very, very necessary with regards to efficient movement so that we're not likely to go to a range where the skeleton is at risk. Yeah? We see people with hypermobility, often they're more at risk of things like elbow fractures or fractures in the ankles because their muscular system is allowing them to go further. The more possibility for movement, the more risk there is of injury. And uh, the other thing to think about with regards to that is efficiency. If, let's say, the proprioceptive and the stabilization sensitivity of the human body is all there in the brain, the more space you have to move within, the more space you need in the brain to be the sort of sensitive computer of that movement. So when you're working with a very small range of movement, it's less work for the brain. If you're working with a human that has a much wider range, people who are hypermobile, 
in general, that's more areas of the body in the brain that they need to build sensitivity for motor control, sensory feedback, stability, proprioception, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it comes down to efficiency. We see in neuroscience, the brain is always trying to be as efficient as possible. So if there's skills or movement ranges that it's not using, in general, it will use that area of the brain for something else that we are doing. So the principle that we use to describe this is use it or lose it. And this is very adequate within flexibility. What we really are looking at is what happens as a child, as you go into adulthood. What movements are you using and what movements are you not using? If you imagine, it takes, it takes time to explain because it is a big topic, but I'll try now to make it succinct and as clear as possible. If you imagine a baby that's just been born, their stretch reflex is very underdeveloped, right? We see a baby and they can flop around. They're very flexible and they're very open. They have very few limitations with regards to flexibility. They can kind of fold in half. They can probably circle their arms quite far. As the baby is going through childhood, and they have this amazing instinct to play and to interact with their environment, their brain is paying attention and learning what ranges of motion are necessary to survive in that environment. So a baby that's born in an environment where they're interacting with the trees a lot, the brain is saying, okay, I'm reaching overhead all the time. I'm swinging by my arm. I need this range in my shoulder to be able to survive in this environment. A baby that's born in an environment where they're interacting with the floor a lot, they're squatting a lot, they're kneeling a lot. The brain is paying attention and saying, oh, I need this range in my hips to be able to survive in this environment. Whether we think it's necessary for survival or not is irrelevant. It's these subconscious areas of the brains that are paying attention to everything we do while we're awake and then while we're sleeping is consolidating those things into things we need to survive in this world. Is there a time frame like uh, during the child development I don't know, is it one year, two years, three years, when the brain selects what's going to be useful? So perspectives are mixed, but let's say if we're trying to make it as simple as possible, then everything pre-puberty is learning. And we see that reflected in how our instincts for interaction play out. So when you look at kids, you see they have this amazing instinct to play, right? And we can really speculate that this instinct to play is to help us learn about our environment and what's necessary. We pick things up, we shake them, we climb things, we wrestle. We're learning what our environment is, what movement vocabulary we will need to be skilled in that environment. When we hit puberty, the brain goes through a very sincere, drastic change where all of the neuronal areas, all of the skills, all of the movement ranges, all of the words, everything that we're not using, it strips back, it prunes away, like you're trimming the, the edge of a tree to make it the shape that you want. It's doing that to consolidate what it thinks is necessary for survival. Because at puberty, the time for learning is over. And the time for delivering those skills and being skilled in your environment, being able to hunt, to gather, to fight, to protect, and then also to raise children has started. So we transition at puberty, and it's really reflected very clearly in the brain, from this learning, playing, interacting existence into this consolidation existence. So at that point, this use it or lose it becomes, this is the moment where if you haven't been using it, you're going to lose a lot of it. Before that point, it's very easy to teach a child a new skill because their brain is in that interaction mode. Language, movement, whatever. 
They really pick it up very fast. After that point, it's very difficult to teach humans new skills. You know, we've all tried to learn languages as adults and just find it so difficult. Learning new movements, learning new skills, trying to get more flexible. It's very difficult. The brain is no longer in that state. It's in a state more consistent with repeating the things that you've already learned. As far as it's concerned, you should know everything you need already. You had 12, 13 years to learn what you need to survive. That's more than enough. Now it's time to use those skills. And, you you know, evolutionary-wise, survival-wise, it's not necessary to learn anything new. But now, as humans in the 21st century, we want to learn new things. We have a much longer life expectancy and we want to fill it with joy. And often learning new things can facilitate that. So if we want to learn a new thing, in this case, develop our flexibility, we need to essentially tell the brain on repeat, we need this for survival. We need this for survival. We need this for survival. Now, the brain doesn't categorize the things that happen during our day based on anything other than this is necessary for survival. So sitting on the sofa, if you do it all day, your brain thinks that's what you need to survive. Uh, Watching TV all day, the same. Running once a day, your brain thinks we need to be able to run for this long to survive. And so then your brain facilitates the capabilities in your body. And and I mean, like, it's all a dynamic network. It's the brain and all of the subsystems, the peripheral nervous system as well, facilitates the continuation of that skill. So what does that mean? It means if you want to try to achieve these deep squats or learning to get more flexible, it means spending as much time during your waking hours as you can interacting with those positions. So to take it back to our previous point, could someone change their environment, say, okay, from now on, I'm going to spend more time getting up and down off the floor. I'm going to spend more time kneeling low down and working with the lower desk. I'm going to spend more time resting in these low squatted positions or these low leg positions. If it's happening a little bit every day, over time, the brain will recognize those positions as necessary for survival. And that stretch reflex will soften. And the map in the brain a familiar movement range will expand and it will become slightly larger. Is it different from every single person? Like the time range that you need to learn new things? Yeah, in general, yes. It's very difficult to put an exact, precise, oh, it will take this person two weeks and this person. It's very difficult. There are so many factors, both physiological and psychological, which will influence it. Hmm. Sometimes we'll speak about being in different states within the nervous system. So this sympathetic, parasympathetic state. Sympathetic is this fight, flight, freeze state. And parasympathetic is this rest, digest state. Every day we kind of go through these states in this this, um, sort of rhythm, very linked to the circadian rhythm, this sleep-wake cycle. There's Mm -hmm. some evidence which would suggest that what you are exposed to when you're in a more sympathetic state, you'll pay more attention to with regards to survival needs. And what you're exposed to in a parasympathetic state, you're more attuned to adjusting to with regards to rest needs. So then it becomes more complex, again, based on what you want these positions for. Do you want these positions to be able to move through them in your complex dance improvisation? Or do you want these positions as a restful position to be able to be close to the floor comfortably? I like to link it to aging and longevity because I think it's where it's most relevant. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they're starting to get those first symptoms of sitting down in a chair and they just fall that last little inch or they're getting down to the floor and they have to break their axis, put their hands on the floor to be able to help them get down. This develops, increases as we get older. So if, for example, you want to be able to play with your grandchildren on the floor, 
then it means cultivating the habits now that allow you to feel comfortable in those movements. If you want to be able to have your baby in your arms and stand up from the floor without putting your hands down and have that space in your hips and capability in your lower limbs, then it requires trying to find ways to cultivate those movements and those skills now so that when it comes to it, you're not trying to learn something new at 70, 80 years old. Why did you choose to base your practice on this? Is it because you just wanted to play with this, like see how you could change your habits and witness the process? Or is it because you believe that it's healthy to keep a wider range of movement? Let's say if we link it to public health and afterwards we can touch on sort of athletic possibilities with dancers and that sort of thing. If we're looking at public health, then we can look at the data with regards to things like hip replacements, knee replacements, and we can look at the instances across countries and then also across ethnicities within countries. And what we see is quite consistent. We see that there's lower levels of hip replacements and knee replacements of the countries surveyed. Some of the lowest were places like Korea, Japan, also Israel. And then we look at the places with the highest instances of hip replacements, knee replacements, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Norway. So we're looking at these places where there's a lot colder weather and that there's a clear sort of um, imprint of Western Christianity on the environments that we interact with, tables, chairs, seated toilets. Because it's cold, probably interacting with the floor a lot less. And then we look at the other end, which is Japan, Korea, Israel, cultures where there is a different relationship with the ground, especially in Korea and Japan. We really see in the culture, have some Shinto prayer, often carried out kneeling or completely prone. Taoist prayer and Buddhist prayer, we're very familiar with some of the seated positions, seats sitting on the ground. Japanese dining custom, we see that people will often be kneeling and, and sat low. A baduk, which is this Korean game in Chinese, it's called wei chi. I think it's called go in the West. We see that a lot of the older population are sitting on the ground or kneeling on the ground very regularly, playing these games, whereas in the West often we'll be seated at tables, seated in, in higher chairs. So there are many other factors which can influence instances of hip and knee replacements. It can be to do with access to healthcare. It can be to do with medical custom in the countries. But it's also our role to look at movement custom, especially when we're looking at musculoskeletal complaints and to ask ourselves, is the difference in movement vocabulary and movement nourishment that the general population is exposed to making a difference with regards to these things? And I sincerely believe that it is. I sincerely believe that the exposure of the general population, not just specialist population, dancers, etc., but everyone to these lower positions, squatting, kneeling, will have a better outlook with regards to the avoidance of hip and knee complaints. Um, because what you're doing when you're in those positions is you're helping the musculature to release, to be able to rest in low positions. You're taking out a lot of the strain that exists when you're transferring through those positions because you're adapted to it. You're familiar with it. Instead of causing sort of wear and tear or osteoarthritic responses because it's so difficult and full of tension because of the stretch reflex, instead it's a more easy movement because you're so familiar. You've been using it, so you haven't lost it, so it's not difficult. So it doesn't cause damage or distress in the body. I mean, my experience as a dancer, contemporary dancer, I trained in ballet and contemporary dance. And I also trained in Tukong Musul and other, other Eastern forms where low level movements were a lot more a part of the curriculum and vocabulary. 
And when I began teaching dancers, I found that a lot of the dancers had already lost the floor. I put that in inverted quote marks, lost the floor. What I mean by that is there was a very, very poor form, postural form, to be able to descend to the floor and up without losing the axis, without breaking the axis of head, chest and pelvis. Instead, people would break the axis, put their hands on the floor to help them get lower because the legs just weren't conditioned to be able to, to ascend and descend through that pathway. I started teaching very complex phrases, very dynamic based on the companies that I was working with at the time. But I kept noticing these same small areas of a lack of development and by looking to my education in a Western dance institution, I noticed that it wasn't covered within the, the curriculum with ballet and, and Cunningham and Graham. It doesn't cover these lower leg positions. It doesn't cover these close to the floor positions. Either you're standing or you're on the floor, but the transitions between barely exist. So as part of this, I felt it was therefore my responsibility to try and encourage dance students to develop these things. And the easiest way to do that was to incorporate it into our curriculum, into our movement vocabulary. And we really focused on it. And the feedback was very positive. And also the, the quantitative outlook with regards to performance indicators was very encouraging. With regards to transitions from floor to standing, there are other people in the field working on those transitional moments very nicely. David Zambrano in Flying Low really looking at these transitions from standing to the ground while keeping the axis with good postural integrity. But um, because a lot of Western contemporary dance is informed by Western religious and social views, our relationship with the floor and our transitions in and out of the floor at the time seemed like it needed some specific attention. So you personally never had to reclaim this range of movement because of your pluridisciplinary training from when you were a teenager to today, you always kept this ease to go to deep squat and have this relation to the floor and so on. Not quite. Almost. I think I was lucky in that I had exposure at a young age to what I couldn't do. You know, sitting in a jujitsu class at 13 and realizing I can't sit on my heels because it's so painful. And I think a lot of people have experienced this. Um, when they first try and sit in that Cesar position, that kneeling meditation position with the feet underneath the, the posterior, it can be very, very uncomfortable. The same with the deep squat. I could stay there, but not for long. But it was through deciding for myself and for my own movement vocabulary as a performer, my craft as a performer, that I would like these positions to be part of my vocabulary for the sake of transition and also for the sake of just being able to be comfortable in those positions with regards to things like meditation, with regards to cooking, eating, going to the toilet, that I would like that choice, that I'm not limited by the Western environment in which I was brought up. So that meant, as a teenager, spending time in those positions, familiarizing myself with them enough, to the point where now they feel very, very, very comfortable, more comfortable than sitting on a chair. And if I sit on a chair for too long, then I start to have sort of lower back complaints. So it's sort of flipped the other way around. But it takes time. And these changes, I would really encourage people to take time with. If you change, if you just blast it and overwhelm your brain with the change of saying, now I'm going to do it 24 hours a day or, you know, exaggerating, but I'm going to stay in a squat for six hours a day and never sit in a chair again. Your brain needs time to catch up with those gradual changes. So I would start slow because when you rush it, we see instances of injury become much higher. The brain becomes overwhelmed with the change in it. And then You don't catch up with the stability. You don't catch up with the proprioception. 
you don't catch up. Suddenly you have all this new space, but you haven't stabilized it yet. Of course, you're going to be vulnerable to injury. So take time to do it slowly is what I would really encourage if you're trying to find more space within your system. Understand the process, the stretch reflex. Understand, okay, I'm an adult perhaps, so it's going to take longer. I'm not a kid anymore. That's for it. And that has evolutionary benefit. So I'm working a little bit against my evolutionary nature. So it takes a bit of effort. It takes a bit of conscious discipline. It's not going to be easy. And it just takes time and uh, repetition and a mm. gentle approach, I think. So if people want to play and challenge their stretch reflex with you, how can they do that? I'm part of a collective called Furious Anime Terra Nova. We are a movement research collective based mainly in Europe. And we teach within institutions. So we teach within dance institutions, theater institutions, circus, and more and more now also in sporting contexts. We also offer workshops. At the moment with the pandemic, our workshop program is completely restricted, but we will be looking over the rest of 2021 to start offering a workshop program again, probably starting in the summer around June or July, based on the current outlook. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much, Tomislav, for all the information. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening until the end. If you like what you just heard, follow us on Instagram at DancesFAQ and share our content with a friend. Bye for now.